0: Before today's Educator Escape episode, I wanted to bring something to your attention really quick. If your school, your classroom needs earbuds or headphones, please, please consider TFD Supplies. That's T-F-D. Supplies.com, and you can get them for 55 cents each. That's right, 55 cents for your regular earbuds. You're already using them probably for testing, your school store, your library, all these places. 55 cents each. You are not going to beat the price. Unconditional lifetime warranty, free shipping anywhere in the USA. Over 500,000 earbuds in stock in 12 different color options. Please consider TFD supplies the next time your school your classroom needs earbuds. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Educatorscape podcast. My name is Seth Tripp and today is Tuesday, November 16th, 2018. Thank you for listening in today. I hope everyone's weekend was a great one. Today is the day for the midterm elections and I hope you will go out and vote. In case you missed our episode on Thursday, I talked with Dan Haig, who is a former music teacher from Indiana, who had to make the difficult decision to leave education. We talked about how his identity was wrapped up in teaching, how he created a new identity through his faith, and found relief and purpose in a new career. Tomorrow on the Educator Escape blog, I talk about what led to the wave of one in four races in today's election, having at least one teacher as a candidate. Go give it a read at EducatorEscape.com tomorrow. After today's episode, go subscribe to the podcast where we listen Into to podcasts. I'm currently on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, and Spotify. After you have subscribed, go give the show a review. As of right now, you can only review on iTunes and Stitcher and comment on CastBox. So please take some time and review us on any of those sites. It helps our podcast grow. One note for those of you that listen on Google Play, Google is making some changes to how you listen to Google Podcasts. Google is phasing out the Google Play Store for podcasts and switching to their own podcast app. So Google is where you listen to your podcasts. Make sure that you go and download the Google Podcast app to stay current with our podcast and any others that you listen to. You can also find the podcast on social media. After you subscribe, go search Educator Escape on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. After you find our page, hit the like button on Facebook and hit the follow button on Instagram and Twitter. Because the show is interview-based, I am always looking for new and exciting guests for the podcast, so if you know of anybody that is doing something awesome in education, please either message me on social media or email me at seth.educatorescape at gmail.com. Also, give any other suggestions or comments for the podcast, you can send them to me there as well. Today on Educator Escape, I'll be talking about politics. Don't run away yet. It's not so much politics as how to vote with a teacher heart and mind. I'll be talking with return guest Kevin Haar about some key issues to consider when you step into the ballot box today. If politics isn't your thing, that's okay, but I urge you to take a moment to consider how you should be voting in one of the most controversial midterm elections over time. I'm not going to be endorsing a candidate or telling you that you have to be a Democrat or Republican. I simply want to convey that the future in education is at stake every time that we step into the polling booth. Here's my conversation with Kevin Haar. Welcome to the Educator Escape special election day episode. Usually on the first Tuesday of the first full week of the month, I bring on a teacher and we talk about a movie that involves teachers and then break it down to see how realistic it is. But as you learned in your government class in high school, on the first Tuesday after the first Monday of the month of November is Election Day. And I decided that it was the duty of the podcast to talk about some of the issues that teachers should consider when they're going to the polls. This midterm election has been one of the most highly contested and volatile in our lifetime. No matter what end of the spectrum you fall on, decisions are being made on your behalf to determine the future of education in this country. We will discuss some of the issues and races that teachers should be paying attention to and should consider when they go to the polls today. Joining me today is my friend and fellow teacher of the Social Studies, Kevin Har. Also, he's a special education teacher at Central Middle School in the Riverview Garden School District. Thank you, Kevin, for joining me today. Yep, thanks for having me, Seth. Kevin and I have shared some episodes together as well as a school space together. We honestly come at government today from totally different perspectives at times. We do both have a uh, find ourselves to scholars, maybe not scholars, maybe more um, students of the constitution and the government and the social studies and students of history. And so when we taught government or we taught social studies, we, we both felt it was our duty to educate our students and uh, therefore educate ourselves and feels our duty to do so now. Somehow, even though we come with our differences through a time in which it seems that people who have different perspectives are supposed to strongly dislike each other, we both remain really good friends. And probably it's because we are mature adults.
1: What would you say about that, Kevin?
0: How do we make it happen?
1: Yeah, I think the mature adults, I think, is, is good. Yeah, I think it's absolutely important that people are able to have conversations and to talk and to agree and disagree with each other in a in you know a professional rational way, and so anytime we can you know bring that discourse about, it's gonna it's it's positive for anybody who listens, and it's it's a positive step for the country.
0: Absolutely, and it's something that
1: you and I have both encouraged in our
0: classroom is to have positive discourse, and even when we disagree or we see the perspective through um, our eyes, I, I think both of us also do a good job at playing the devil's advocate and asking students to think critically, and so...
1: And coming up on on the holidays as well, Seth, I don't know how you're going to be with Thanksgiving, but I know it. Uh, We'll all be sitting down and enjoying a nice family meal, and and most likely my dad will say something, and then uh, the whole table is going to erupt in (laughs) one argument or another, so to find ways to kind of have that rational conversation and to, to turn off that radar... Like I find myself sometimes and even in the classroom a kid says something that I totally morally and ethically disagree with and my like radar will turn on, oh I gotta say something, I gotta defend my position. But be able to dial that radar back and, you know, to be able to have those rational conversations are, are so important.
0: Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm definitely in the in the same boat. Yeah, I totally understand. So we thought it would be good to talk about some issues that teachers should consider when they're going to the polls this year. I don't want to tell you who to vote for. I don't tell you that you should be a Republican or a Democrat, but I just want you to have your teacher cap on when you go into the voting booth, and we're going to cover a few a few issues here in today's podcast. If politics isn't your thing, you know, that's okay, but... I think it's everybody's duty to uh, to go out and and vote and and to uh, be educated. So take some time with us today and and listen in. The first issue that we're going to talk about is as a hot button issue in the state to the east of us, in in Illinois. And there's some other states that it's a, a big time issue, is early childhood education. There aren't any ballot. There aren't any ballot measures or referendums or anything like that, but you do have politicians who support it and politicians who oppose it. And from the Rutgers Center 2016 released a statement saying that giving students early child education raises high school graduation rates, lower special ed enrollment, and boosts reading scores. Riverview Gardens now has an early childhood education center that is fully funded. Rittner does, a lot of the other schools here in St. Louis do as well, and you can see definitely see the, the benefits of it. Before we get into the, the race, which is in Illinois with the governor's office, Kevin, why do you think it's really important to have that early childhood step when it comes to education?
1: So when we're talking about early childhood, so we're talking about three schooling for three and four-year-olds in the public school system, just like they would go through in kindergarten or first grade and, and so forth. So starting those kids off earlier just makes sense. Like, they're, they're getting into the classroom, they're learning the structure, they're learning the social skills, they're learning their letters, and they're doing this all before they reach a kindergarten class. And so districts that have these early childhood education centers are starting off their children already a lot farther than those who aren't. The kids in preschool are learning their letters, while as in other districts, the kids in kindergarten are starting to learn their letters. It's also, in terms of special education, from from that perspective, Getting kids started in the preschool really helps figure out and helps people determine, you know, whether a child has like is on the autism spectrum or has speech and language issues or anything like that. It becomes so much more easily detectable. And the earlier you detect an educational disability, the better you're going to be able to service it and identify it and learn about it as you grow older. So. And I think most people, if you ask most people, should should there be preschool education programs, most people would say yes. But the issue comes with the money. Right. Who should pay for it? Where should the money come from? It doesn't grow on trees. And that seems to be where a lot of the disagreement comes in the ballot box. Right. So it's really not an issue of
0: should three- and four-year-olds be getting some sort of education. It's where is the money going to come from is basically the issue that that we talk about. And I think it just has to come down to how can you make the money accountable? How do you make it so we know exactly where the money is going? And we'll talk about that more when we talk about vouchers and things like that. But I think that's a, a big issue with some people. You're not exactly sure what it's going to. In Illinois, you have a huge education problem you have you know the school budget there are teachers that are have had frozen salaries for years They had to get an emergency influx into the to the education system there. Chance the rapper donated 10 million dollars to prop up the Chicago Public school system, which is amazing fantastic but you can't rely on chance the rapper or or in St. Louis's case in to prop up you know, St. Louis public schools or anything like that. So there has to be some sort of accountability to where the money's going for and we have to find that. So we have a race that is pretty heated in Illinois. You have Brett Rauner, who is the uh, Republican, he's the incumbent in the state. I'm not gonna talk about any other issue, but when it comes to early childhood education, this is his plan. Four hundred million to general education. So it could go to anything in education it could be vocational schools it could be could honestly be voucher programs you know it's there's no not necessarily any sort of accountability he said he would get the money from medicare makeover recruiting businesses to expand the tax base then you have the democrat jb pritzker universal so everybody gets it three and four year olds early childhood education it would take longer money comes from income tax increase which would which would be a vote. I know this is all like people are probably falling asleep listening to me talk about it, but it's getting into the, the nitty gritty. And to come up with the money, you would legalize sports betting and recreational marijuana, which is where they would get the money from. So if we're talking about a plan, which one on its face to you sounds like the more plausible one? And so therefore, maybe the candidate that we should look at more seriously.
1: Well, uh, Mr. Prisker's plan definitely seems more direct, has more specific targets that he wants to hit and specific ways so that it's going to be funded. So in in no way do I think that a Medicaid cut is a way to pay for public education. But like Mr. Prisker says, legalizing sports betting, which is inevitable, it's happening across the country. The Supreme Court cleared the pathway for that Many states are doing it and enjoying increased revenue. Legalizing recreational marijuana or medical marijuana and taxing that makes so much sense. Again, inevitable. Some states have already done it. Canada to the north has done it and is reaping benefits from that. And these are two hugely untapped tax markets for the for government revenue. And so it, I like to see Illinois who I consider to be behind on most things, (laughs) trying to come out in front on some of these issues because it's only a matter of of years before both of these things are are, are nationwide. And so to have that where you're not taking away from other people's, you know, tax benefits for Medicaid or anything, but instead you're adding new revenues of taxes, which I think makes a lot of sense. And it seems to get, it'll get the ball rolling faster on the early childhood education, getting those started in, you know, 2020, 2021. And so that that, that plan seems to make more sense to me.
0: I I agree. And I, I agree with you in the sense that as a libertarian, I think that the legalizing, like people should be allowed to make the decisions that they want. You're, you're an adult. You can make a rational decision. And so if you want to smoke marijuana, you know the uh, the repercussions of it. And taking that tax base from recreational marijuana you know, would bring up the, the amount of tax money. But also, the big thing to think about, I think, when you look at education when it comes to marijuana, is that there is... In a lot of school districts, it seems like a school-to-prison pipeline. You see it in inner-city schools. You see it in in rural schools. You see, you know, where the only way to make money is if you get into some sort of illicit trade of, of drugs. And a lot of times, that's marijuana. And if you, in these school districts, if you eliminate the need for illegal drug sales, if you legitimize it, then you're eliminating you're possibly eliminating a problem and you're getting those kids out of the juvenile system that may have possession records or dealing records that are nonviolent and things like that. And you're getting them back into the classroom and you're making them more productive citizens. And that's where I come out on it is that, you know, it doesn't do a kid necessarily good to at the age of 14 because he had to carry his brother's, You know stuff around so that when he went through the county courthouse, he wouldn't get caught with it. You know, that's the that's the that kid gets you know in juvie for two or three years. That's not necessarily what should happen to that kid. You know, and so and people can have different opinions on this, but when it comes to that plan, like you said, being focused on what you want to do with the money. And then legitimizing things that are going to be legitimate anyways, and getting out ahead of things, I think is the is the right way to go.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point.
0: Our second issue is going to be on the voucher programs. So you have more of a you have some of those NEA perspectives on on voucher programs. There's only one. Voucher program ballot issue this year, but of course we all have candidates that oppose or for vouchers. It seems that a lot of Republicans, Betsy DeVos is a fan of the voucher programs. Uh, of course, the president who hired her is a fan of the voucher programs, and so. Of course, you have Republicans who tend to lean that way, but you also have Democrats who tout some of those things. So you should really take a look at that when you're looking at who you're going to vote for. If you're in Arizona, I know I have about half a dozen people that listen in, in Arizona, and uh, they have a, a statewide race, Prop 305. There's a, a program that is a, they touted as a scholarship program, but it's a voucher program that takes state money and puts it into the voucher program's pocket. Approved last year and the referendum this year is to expand that. And But the thing is that it's capped at 30,000 students. Even Betsy DeVos and those people are saying they should vote no because it doesn't go far enough and people who oppose it voucher programs on its face say no because it's voucher programs in general. So it doesn't seem like it's going to pass. But something that I was thinking about is that should maybe you vote yes so it stays limited if you're against vouchers? Because somebody made the point that they're probably just gearing
1: up to do like a bigger overhaul in their next election. So what do you th- what do you think about that? I suppose that, that argument would be you're voting for the lesser of two evils in yeah. that the... The Republican base will go ahead and push a more aggressive uh, agenda next time. No, I I wouldn't buy that argument. I, I would I would continue to vote no. So voucher programs are diverting funds from public education to use for private education and they're not being used equitably and they're not being used in any way that is protecting or helping public schools. So as you're diverting funds from public schools and we see this across all of our every district we've worked in, art classes being cut, music classes being cut, Spanish-French classes being cut, Vax classes being cut, all of this and partially because funds could be diverted from the use of vouchers. On top of that, who are the kids who are using these voucher programs are the ones who are gonna be more well off. They're gonna be the ones whose family can afford the rest of the payment for a private school. And so it's indiscriminately discriminating there against you know people who aren't able to have some of that. So it's, it's creating less diversity in public schools and it's creating less equal opportunity. So in, in no way do I support any kind of voucher program and I couldn't vote yes on one even if it was a minor one. Okay did read a,
0: an article this week. We, this is me just playing a little bit of, of devil's advocate from Mike McShane, who is a, an advocate for school voucher programs, but he is a writer on, at Forbes magazine. Forbes does sort of lean to the right when it comes to the economy. He says that voucher programs actually save money. And here's the here's the argument. The argument is that if there is a, so when schools get students, the state gives them a certain amount of money to educate that student. The school can either spend that exact amount of money or they can use other resources to spend more money than the state gives them. So the thought is that if those students leave that school, the school isn't to educate that child anymore and their money is being given to another school in the form of a voucher, a private school, a charter school, however that voucher is getting given to them. And so if that school, the example that we used earlier was if that school spends $15,000 to educate a child and the state is giving them $10,000, then if that child doesn't go to that school anymore, then they save the school saves five thousand dollars, and they can distribute that money elsewhere. So that is what what Mike Machine is. Proposing. I would say to what, yeah, that, What's your response to that?
1: So I would say to that, well, you're still using taxpayer money in an inaccountable way because these private schools that are going to be getting these vouchers are not held accountable in the same way that a public school would be. And so that's less oversight on the money that's being spent. And like I mentioned before, it's kind of it's just decreasing diversity, making these schools more like one socioeconomic group per school. And it's just, you know, propagating that kind of trend which is happening across the country even without Voucher system.
0: When you say they're not being held accountable, what do you mean by they're not being held accountable?
1: Uh, private schools aren't taking necessarily the same sort of state tests that public schools are taking. Um, they're not held to the same state standards. They're allowed to create their own standards, and so there's there's no oversight on that. Also, I mean, you have the whole issue of separation of church and state. So now taxpayer funds are being used to send some student to a Catholic or Christian or or what have you kind of school, which is directly, in my view, you know, contradicting one of our basic tenets of, of American democracy. Right. So when you go and you look
0: at candidates, go look at what their views are on vouchers. Maybe you're a proponent for vouchers, maybe you're not, but make sure that that's an issue that you tackle this year. Issue. I have a lot of friends that are that are Hoosiers. I know in Missouri, Hoosier is not a endearing term. It's actually an insult. But in Indiana, it is a very endearing term. And the one question on the ballot this year in Indiana is a, a balanced budget amendment. And that balanced budget amendment says that a balanced budget must be passed every year. Which sounds great on its face. You and I, we supposed to have a balanced budget within our within our selves within our own personal selves but what happens a lot of time we come on to unexpected costs right we have a car repair we have medical bills things like that and if we don't have that money then we have to borrow that money somehow but no matter what the budget is that we make and so with this new budget what they have done is that they have allowed for room basically for them to make a mistake is that the state government can pull or reduce pension funds from firefighters, police officers, and teachers in the state of Indiana. And so Teachers Union and other unions, of course, are having them vote no. Being in Missouri, that has one of the best pension programs in the country. How would it feel if, if in Missouri we're talking about having to reduce our, our pension issue? Why is that such a big issue to teachers? Why should we vote with that in mind?
1: So there are next to no economic benefits of being a teacher apart from that pension program. And so, I mean, teachers are making less money than people with bachelor's degrees across the country. Teachers make less money on top of that. We are spending money in our own classrooms because of lack of funds there. And the one solid financial thing that I feel like is going for teachers is that pension plan. And so in a job that it has, is having decreasing number of people looking to be teachers if you're taking away that that financial stability or that that um you know those financial aspects that are positive about being a teacher it's going to create less people in the classroom it's going to have a lot of people who are in you know their 30s and stuff looking to leave teaching to find a 401k elsewhere so to diminish a lot of those pensions that people are working hard for and that are ensuring that we have teachers in the classroom that it's just going to have ripple effects that are just going to be detrimental I think to education. I would tell you if, if the if I felt that the pension program in Missouri was somehow going to not be there for me or be diluted in such a way that it wasn't going to be, you know, sustainable for me in retirement, yeah, I mean I would absolutely seriously consider leaving the profession.
0: And Indiana has one of the biggest teacher deficiencies in the country I mean in terms of teacher openings right now they're in the top ten of most vacancies that are in this in the country and so passing this this amendment would just be a just a, a terrible idea because like you said people get into teaching like you and I we got into teaching because we love teaching we love our subject matter we love the we love helping students it's something that we felt like a calling to and but the but the thing is is that we still have to pay for our families we still have to ensure that we can support our families and long gone are the days where somebody can work 40 hours a week and the other one can stay at home and support a family it doesn't happen anymore you need two incomes and when you have the possibility of one being diminished it just makes it feel like you're not appreciated Uh, there's one thing that you did talk about we talked about before when it comes to money education you talked about how teaching is traditionally a female dominated profession and is seen as a feminine way and you think that there's some sort of effect on pay in that how would you address that?
1: So both of us being males in the profession, most of the people who we both worked with have been female. And if you look historically back to Britain or the United States, even for the last, you know, 100, 200 years, there's most teachers have been women. And the, the low pay, I would say, is di- is directly related to that fact and is a sexist thing. It If you look back at, back to the Eisenhower administration, so there was this Big poll, you know, Cold War times. We're battling with Russia. Who's got the best people? Who's going to get to the moon and all this kind of thing. So there was this big push to get to increase math scores across country, increase science scores to get all these students into the classroom. And so the Eisenhower administration had a very targeted campaign to get males into the classroom because they thought, oh well, men will be able to teach math and science better than women could, and. Th- men across the country did not take the teaching jobs. They said, well, no, the pay is is too little. And the Eisenhower administration did not push for you know, increase in pay for teachers, because they said, oh, well, the, the women will be happy to take those jobs. And they just left it there. And pay has not increased, even with the rate of inflation, you know, up from that time. So even now, teachers are making, you know, the, our raises are not compensatory to the rate of inflation. Right. And that just can, there are some districts that haven't given raises to teachers in a long time. A, a district we used to both work for, hasn't given a raise to teachers since 2004. And definitely inflation has happened since then, and it just hasn't been equal to it. I have some statistics here for you, sir. Okay. So on average in the country, teachers are making $38,600 is the okay. average pay for, for a teacher starting out, so a first-year teacher, Okay. 38600 So to start out as a teacher, you're going to need a bachelor's degree. The average pay for somebody with a bachelor's degree is just over 50000 So it is an 11000 you know, almost $1,000 a month difference between somebody who's going into the teaching profession and somebody with a bachelor's degree out, you know, doing something else. So the states with the lowest average pay are Oklahoma and Montana which was just over 31000 And you saw this summer with the Oklahoma teachers, um, you know, courageously standing up for um, their pay there. Um, Connecticut has the highest starting teacher pay at 45000 So over on the East Coast. So there's a, the Chronicle of Higher Education has an incoming freshman survey. So this, they've surveyed students across the country. They've been doing this since 1971. And they found that this year, 4% of incoming freshmen say that they are going to college to become a teacher. Okay. And this is the lowest number since the survey has been taken. And it has been dropping since about 2010. It's just had a steady decline. So four percent of people going into college are looking to be educators, and that is just not enough. And to say that the money factor and the pension factor and those sort of things uh, are, is not an issue is is being blindsided because absolutely, if if you know you're 18 years old and you're going into college, you're going to think about how you can provide for your family and how you can provide, you know, how to how to make that buku money, right? That's mm-hmm. what the kids are looking to do, and. It's difficult to do that in the teaching profession with those when you know that your same degree can get you 10, 12, 15, 20,000 more doing something else. Right. A CBS poll in February of this year found that 68% of people felt that teachers were paid too little. Right. So, the majority of the country, 68% doesn't agree on hardly anything, but they agree that teachers need to be paid more money, so it's time that we go to the ballot box and support these measures for teachers and support these candidates who are thinking about teachers. And you've mentioned that, uh, you told me prior, that there's a record number of teachers who are actually running themselves in, in these elections.
0: And, yeah, and a lot of them are in statewide ri- races. Uh, the statistic is one in four of the statewide races are have teachers in them. You have. 6,066 total races and 1,455 of those have educators running in office and that's just in state races. You have some big-time races. You have representative, U.S. House of Representative races where you have former teachers running. Uh, Jahan Hayes in Connecticut's fifth, who is the 2016 National Teacher of the Year, is running on an education platform. You have Chrissy Houlihan, who's a former chemistry teacher, running in Pennsylvania sixth as a Democrat and then Tony Evers who has been involved in education for a very long time in public education is running against Scott Walker for governor in Wisconsin. One of probably the more actually honestly little or talked about governors races that are around so you have all of these teachers that are being putting their foot forward uh, to be involved in education. And 70% of them are Democrats, 30% are Republicans, no third-party people that uh, that have registered. How much of this do you think those, there is... The residual effect of these teacher walkouts that we had earlier this
1: year in Oklahoma and Arizona. I think a lot of it. I, I mean, I, I followed it intensely while it was going on and supported it tremendously, and you know, hope that we can reach that point in Missouri where we can get that that fervor going so that we can get ourselves here in a, in a better position with the state. And so, yeah, it for so long. You know, it's it's really easy for a politician to say, oh, well, of course I support our schools. But what are you going to do about it, right? Like, there's no lobbyists for education. There's not, you know, like the oil companies or anything going in and, and paying and uh, NRA, donating thousands and thousands of dollars to people's campaigns. There's none of that happening for public education. So you have to have candidates who truly believe in it. And we've seen with Common Core and stuff, these government people trying to create standards and laws for the classroom without ever having been in the classroom themselves. And we as teachers are struggling with that. And so to see all these people step up and to say "All right, I'm I'm done with these politicians, I'm done with people making false promises, we have to invest in our children. Like, that is how we're going to make society better. We have to educate. That's the way you break the cycle of poverty, is through education. So to see the teachers step up like that is is such a hopeful and insightful thing and i'm, I'm so glad to see it happening yeah in, in missouri we almost in st louis county
0: we almost had a former teacher who received the democratic nomination Corey brown is that correct is that her name former teacher uh, in st louis county almost defeated Lacey clay who has been an incumbent here for many quite a while quite a while if from Indianapolis people he is the Andre Carson of the St. Louis area almost unseated him in the in the primary and i, I think it has to do with what you said that teachers are fed up with education not being a front running issue when you look at the issues that drive people education just doesn't seem to be there when you look in the polls you they have it on their campaign website This is what I think about education, but they don't talk about it on the campaign trail except when they're directly asked. It's not something that they want to bring up. And I think teachers, if you look at all the things that some of these teachers are are running on, a lot of these state reps, the people running as state reps, are running on education-first platforms. The one that I I did want to highlight, it is... Craig Hoxie who is from Oklahoma so he's from one of those from one of those areas that was involved in the in those marches he's running as a democrat as a uh, a state rep and he did that 110 mile march to the state capitol with the teachers and his big thing that he's advocating for cuz Oklahoma has a huge opioid opioid crisis is for more opioid education for students. Well, we were in a school district that that was a huge issue. You know, you grew up, you went to high school in a, in a county, that that is a, a huge issue in, in, in Jefferson County.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and to see teachers who are thinking about the issues that their students face. I think that is the big thing. They're thinking about the issues that their students face. And so when we think about these people that are teachers, they're becoming politicians, but they're not really leaving the classroom in the sense that they're going to stop caring about their students. That's why they're running. I think that's really essential. Uh, I agree. Yeah. As you go into the ballot box, we have a couple thoughts for you. I'm going to go first and then Kevin's going to give you uh, what he thinks about what you should be thinking about when you go into the ballot box. Be thinking about what people think about early childhood education. We talked about the benefits of it. Uh, What are you going to do that's going to impact early childhood education and why is that important? Um, What are your views on voucher programs? Think about the fact that that money may be getting diverted to places that you can't be you can't hold those people accountable for. Think about your future as a teacher. Do you want to have a secure future? Do you want your pension to be there? Do you want your family to be taken care of? And then think about your students. Think about the people that are running, and are they supporting things that are going to take care of, educate, and
1: support your students? Kevin, what are your final thoughts? I would like people to consider investing their vote in education. Because it is not an instant gratification thing, in educating and putting money into education is a slow burn that is developing and helping to improve our communities. But it is a long-term investment. To invest in a uh, you know preschool, um, early childhood education is not going to see benefits for society until that child graduates and becomes a productive member of society, and. We have to make those investments in our communities um, in order to grow, in order to help students achieve the education that they need to break these cycles of poverty, which allows them to, you know, when they're stuck in poverty to rely on the government and divert tax funds to them in that way. And so if education is the escape from poverty, we need to make those investments into education. Know that your politicians are not receiving money from public education, right? They're not, there's not those lobbyists and so while they are out there stumping for other things, we have to make sure that education always remains in like the consciousness of the country and the consciousness of the community and to go to the box considering some of those those things this week.
0: Thank you Kevin for joining me today to talk about these critical issues for educators. Thank you all for listening in today, and I hope that you will consider what we have discussed when you step into the voting booth today. If you would like to keep track of the show on social media, search Educator Escape and hit the follow button on Instagram and Twitter and hit the like button on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to the podcast. I want you to be the first to get all of our new episodes. And after you subscribe, go give us a review. It helps us get noticed. And if you know of any educators who are doing exceptional work and you would love for them to be highlighted on the podcast, please let me know by emailing me at seth.educatorescape at gmail.com, and I'd love to feature them on the show. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want to go a little bit more in depth, tomorrow on the Educator Escape blog, I talk about what led to the wave of one in four races in today's election having at least one teacher as a candidate. Go give it a read at educatorescape.com. Today's quote is, of course, also related to voting and elections. Always vote for principal, though you may vote alone. And you may cherish the sweetest reflection that your vote is never lost. John Quincy Adams. Thank you for listening today. I look forward to everybody joining me Thursday for our next show in which 2019 Missouri Teacher of the Year Shelly Parks will be joining me. Have a great day. I'm out of here.